I started out as a Wall Street stock analyst, and I would take CEOs and CFOs on roadshows to New York and elsewhere. And I'll never forget when a portfolio manager that ran a billion-dollar fund, we sat down with the executive team, and he pushed aside the, the presentation, and he asked some very basic questions. Like, how do you make money? I'm making this up, but it's like some like, how do you make money? And how does this work? How does that work? And as a young analyst at the time, I was kind of like, I was a bit set back. I'm like, there's no way you took this meeting. You have no idea how this company makes money. Like, in matter of fact, I know you own the stock. So why are you asking such simple questions? But then it hit me. He didn't care about the answer. He cared about the reaction of the executives. And he cared about the additional insights that when they had their guards down, the additional insights that came of it. Hello and welcome to The Melting Pot. I'm your host, Dominic Monkhouse. The Melting Pot is a result of my hunger and curiosity for optimizing business performance exploring corporate culture, customer addiction, and building high-performing teams. It's full of advice from my guests, entrepreneurs, fellow business authors, and examples from some of my work over the last few years, coaching the CEOs and leadership teams of some amazingly successful tech firms. The Melting Pot is my attempt to synthesize what I've learned along the way, to help you build a highly scalable business and realize the potential of your life's work. If you enjoy the episode, head over to monkhouseandcompany.com forward slash podcast to find today's show notes and more editions of The Melting Pot. While you're there, if you subscribe to the newsletter, you can pick up a copy of my new book, Plan B, How to Scale Your Technology Business Faster and Achieve Plan A. Enjoy. Hello, today I am talking with and learning from Patrick Donahue. Patrick's in Minnesota. He's an entrepreneur, expert in valuation. He's an investor. He's chairman of the Entrepreneurs' Organization. So that was an organization founded originally by Vern Harnish. So he's very well versed in the scaling up methodology. He has written a fantastic book called Breakout Valuation. So today we picked through bits of it to try and find some nuggets that will help you think differently about your valuation. So should you sell your business or should you be looking for investment or should you just be looking, phrase I often use is sale ready business. If you're looking to build a business that you could sell if you had to, then some great insight from Patrick on what investors look for and how to think about driving that valuation. His book's got nine, nine main drivers. So we pick through those. We talk a bit about entrepreneur confidence. We talk about curiosity, communication, dive into cash management and forecasting a bit. And then we talk about business design. And then we take a left field at the end and end up talking about work-life balance and morning routine and some great conversation around some inspirational books that he's read in the last sort of 12 months where he's lost a load of weight, got fitter in the best shape of his life and why deliberately designing your life is important. So great conversation. I really enjoyed it. I'm sure you will too. I'm Patrick Donahue, the author of Breakout Valuation, and my life's work is all about helping entrepreneurs find and achieve a valuable business. And my background is in finance, and I love the topic of helping people understand where value lies. And that has been a common thread throughout my career. It's good to be here, Dom. 
Good to have you. Good to have you. I think valuation is a conversation that I have with lots of people very often. So maybe if you've got a, if you've got a simple way that you think about valuation, I, and there, of course, I do. I'm, of course, I am meaning that we, how we value their business, which might not be the same thing because, you know, breakout valuation might be broader than how somebody else might value their business. So quite simply, I think of value as what an asset can do and achieve in the future. So with a business, it's what can that business do in the future? And so if you back into it, what is that worth today? Having some insights of what it can do to achieve in the future. And what's really interesting, and that's why it was really the the basis of the book and why we ended up naming it Breakout Valuation, because as simple as it sounds, it actually runs pretty um, counter to what a lot of what I've found entrepreneurs are taught. And that's why it uh, was a big motivation to get this work out into the world to help entrepreneurs understand that their vision, their magnetic vision is actually driving a lot of value in their business. And so are you thinking there that their business obviously generates revenue and profit, but somehow there's a, there's a multiple on something that they can influence? Well, very much so. But there's, there's causation of value and there's correlation to value. And so the interesting thing there is the idea of a multiple. And so what really started to bother me going to a number of entrepreneurial events over the years is when I would hear entrepreneurs talk about their business as a multiple of EBITDA. And I come from a world of finance and I have a hard time remembering what EBITDA is. And I know darn well, the vast majority of the people in that room had no idea what EBITDA really was or what the acronym even stood for, stands for, and nor should they. Um, And when entrepreneurs are talking about a, a multiple I knew that they were being somewhere somehow hoodwinked by others around them. And it was really deeply disturbing to me. And that's when I had an aha moment. I was literally, Dom, walking through a manufacturing facility by one of the most dynamic entrepreneurs I've met. And she creates these custom tiles. And at that moment, seeing her magnetic vision and seeing the people who were working on the product and love what they were doing, it hit me. It's her business is not a math equation, right? Her business is not a a multiple. Her business is a result of all the things that create value. And what causes value is the magnetic vision of Mercedes and her curiosity and the people on her team and the communications that she has with her and external parties. It's about her being able to handle cash management and financial forecasting, executing capital strategies and designing the business model. That's what causes and creates value. And so that was the aha moment that really led to this. Is she planning to sell her business? That's what's wonderful. No, she's not. She could, right? She's If there's an opportunity or the right thing came for her and uh, her employees, she definitely could exit and she she would be open to that from everything I know, but she's operating her business as if she's going to be running it for the next 10 or 20 years. And so what difference, if she was thinking of selling it in two to three versus operating it for 10 to 20, what, what do you see <laughs> people do differently? <laughs> well, Dom, I know we could, we, could both, we could both riff on this answer because I know you see it too. 
it's that, that therein lies the rub. What what are people doing differently when they think about exiting their business in a few years? They're not as focused on the people and as much the long-term intellectual property and the processes and everything that they're creating. They're doing it for a short-term result. And that's that's the challenge, is when somebody's trying to pump something up for a sale, the vast majority of advisors in the financial world are encouraging entrepreneurs and business owners to do things that will enhance or juice cash flow, or what a lot of people will call EBITDA. And when one does that, they're making a lot of short-term decisions that can fly in the face of long-term decisions that create value. And mostly those entrepreneurs who sell their businesses are then constrained in some way by some earnout. <laughs> so they often find themselves having to live by these new sets of rules that they arbitrarily create to try and maximize the exit value. Oh, I've got so many stories down. Then they fail to make their earnout, or well, a few weeks into it, they have tears in their eyes because they go, What did I just do? Now I've got a boss, I've got a job. That wasn't why I became an entrepreneur in the first place. Yes. You know, because a lot of times your notes will come with them having to stay on board for six months or 24 months. And all of a sudden they're miserable, even though they've got more money than they ever dreamed of in their in their wildest dreams. There's a lot of irony to the whole thing. So who's the audience of your book? You're heavily involved in EO. So is it is it organizations of that scale? Is it is it larger? The target audience is for entrepreneurs who want to scale a long-term viable business. That's the core audience. It's agnostic to the size of business. As somebody has already has a, a business that's doing a billion dollars in sales, the content is as valuable to them as an entrepreneur that, you know, is embarking on a startup and, and just getting their feet underneath them. I worked really hard to bring the idea of finance, and, and I like to call it entrepreneurial finance, but bringing the, the concepts and the frameworks around entrepreneurial finance, delivering it in as plain English as possible, so it was actually actionable by the reader. Because that's, that's the key is, you know, Dom, I mean, you, your work is, is absolutely wonderful and it's so well needed in the world. And, and we're, we're seeing this from different lenses. But what happens all the time is you can, we can have experts and we can have people that have the best insights in the world. But if it doesn't help that owner, operator, entrepreneur take the first step and the second step and to get things in motion, all the expertise in the world doesn't matter. And so that's where you know, I wrote the book in as plain English as possible to help people take action. And I know, you know, you do that in your work and with your book, right? It's all about how do you tip people into action? And that's what, that's what really matters is to make it approachable. And so your, so your, your thesis here is don't build a business to sell, sell if you want to sell. Not necessarily. I have no problem. If people want to build a business to sell, I'll just be clear about that. If they want to build a business to sell, by by all means, that's very viable. But I would encourage people to think beyond that because most people are coached to tell people, investors in particular, that they're building a business to sell because they know that's the only way that they can bring in investment dollars. And I'd like to say that's false. Okay. Tell me more. Because there are other ways to finance growth without having to sell a business. The reason people have to sell a business for cash someday 
is when they bring in other external capital in the form of equity partners. When they sell equity to external parties, the only way to give them a return is to sell the business for cash. Now, don't get me wrong, there are other ways to maybe get them out, but it's awkward and difficult for everybody involved. So the simplest, most straightforward, the music to every investor's ears is that that entrepreneur has a plan to sell that business in a few years for cash, because that's what moves the needle for venture capital and angel investors. Okay, so bootstrap it, debt, crowdfunding, minority equity partners who take a longer term view, all, all viable options? Very much so. And if one is doing a financial model to understand what type of capital a business needs, they can better plan for that. Traditional venture capital is up and to the right. They have to fuel high growth and high growth is very, very, very expensive. But if a business owner, if an entrepreneur wants to own a business for 10 years, 20 years, or hand it over to the next generation, even if it is a capital intensive business, they can properly plan for that. I call it stair-step growth. It's grow, pause, optimize, dial everything in, reset, earn some cash, and then grow again. Because it's that growth that's expensive. It's the investment into people. It's the investment into you know, receivables and inventory for some business models. The, uh, it's interesting. What do you think is a sustainable level of growth? That's a wonderful question. I almost wrote about it. I had a chapter, I didn't get into the book, about the idea of a sustainable growth rate. And it's out there, but I couldn't get it into plain English enough for entrepreneurs. I'll take a crack at it again. But there is a number. There is a number of like, but it's, but it's business model dependent. There, some business models can handle you know 50% growth. So especially if they're being paid immediately for their services. So if we think about a lot of technology software companies, they might be able to afford 50% growth. There's some business models that can hardly afford 10% growth, especially if they're asset intensive and have inventory. But there is an equation of how much growth one can afford. How I get there, how I've always gotten there is just doing the hard work of spending you know, 20, 30, 60 hours in a financial forecast and not just putting together the P&L, but more importantly, is the balance sheet and the cash flow statement, understand cash coming in and out of the business. All that work goes into, we all we do it for one line, and that's cash balance to understand on month three, month 10, month 24, what's the cash balance look like and to make sure a business has the right amount of cash. That's good to know that people should be having that 24-month, 36-month cash flow forecast. By month. By month, you see, because quite often I sit down with clients and I say, what's your cash flow forecast? Or, you know, as you tip into a recession, you know, the last pandemic, how many, you know, what's your days to death? Tell me about your cash flow forecast. And, and often people don't have it at their fingertips. Well, they don't. And what, I, what I've come to learn, Dom, the hard way is I believe that the big chunk, maybe even a majority of people in accounting and finance that have accounting and finance, and one would assume they know how to forecast a, a cash flow statement, they actually don't know how to do it. Well, one of the challenges I see a lot is that clients don't actually have a clear idea of their business model. Right. So they don't have a sustainable business model. They don't know what type of clients generate what type of profit. Right. And, and so I'll say, you know, what proportion of your profit comes from what number of your customers? Exactly. Don't know. 
Okay, so what type of customers do you need to go out and win to become more profitable? Dunno. Uh, I was with a client last week and I asked them the question and they went away, did the work and came back. And what they realized is they were going, they were starting to push further up market and they might have been doing a, you know, 10,000 pound a month was a big deal for them. Now it's 100,000 pounds a month. Maybe now they'll do a deal which is $350,000 a month actually in their case. But those customers were demanding a better price and therefore as they went up market their margin was going down and and they were saying well that's okay it's like no no that's not okay no no that's not, not a sustainable business model <laughs> if you want to go up market you've got to think how do we sustain our margin as we get as we win bigger deals yeah it, i'm i'm laughing a bit because when i heard you say that too like i wrote a book i wrote a chapter in the book on confidence it's like why would a book about valuation and so on and so forth to have a th- piece about confidence well entrepreneurs need to have the confidence to stick true to their terms and their pricing because they will roll over. They start to win bigger business and they feel the need to appease the customer at every step of the way. And little do they realize that that could be the a death blow to the business if it's not handled appropriately. Because they don't have a month over month cash flow projection for the next 36 months. So they don't know that they're growing broke Exactly. And that's why it's, it's, it's scary, but a lot of businesses are really acting as the bank to their customers. And that's not okay. That's what causes companies to go under. Particularly smaller businesses working with larger clients. You know, the moment, the moment you get an economic headwind, that 30 days that you contracted is 60, is 90, is 120, and there's not a lot you can do. Right. Well, and small businesses are largely not bankable. You know, they, they may have some smaller lines or some smaller term loans and, and so forth. And depending on the country that they reside in, there's different programs available to them. But they're not getting all the capital that they need from a traditional lending source. And therein lies the problem as well. You know, the big businesses have full-blown banking relationships that are deep. And they can get, you know, term loans for 10, 20, even 30 years but for the small businesses, they just they don't have all the capital that they need at their fingertips. And so they're very fragile. And like you said, they can't afford any hiccup in the economy. So tell me, give me some insight from the some insights from the book then. One of the things I I, yeah. I got from it is, you know, you you are laying out for the non-financial. Again, you meet I meet people all the time, like you know, like <laughs> for whom this book would be ideal. Right. You know, you, you would think as because they're running a business and they're a founder that they might have a clear, clear grasp of definition of all of these terms. Well, it, it's challenging being an entrepreneur without a doubt. And it's one of the more challenging things I've ever done. Um, when I took a leap in entrepreneurship uh, 15 years ago, um, I naively thought it was going to be somewhat easy and straightforward, you know, and it is it is extremely tough. And so I always acknowledge that. And the reality is that entrepreneurs just have they don't have the, the type of time for the training that they should have. But what's beautiful is like with you and scaling up and Vern Harnish and so many others is that they've packaged things to provide more training to entrepreneurs that need it the most. But with finance, yes, there's a lot of different terms and insights that are extremely valuable for entrepreneurs. And of course, I would argue that they they need to know it. It's like a must have. 
But if you do a search on Amazon or anything on the internet and you look for the idea of entrepreneurial finance, they're academic textbooks. You know, there's a few authors that have done a really nice job, um, like Michael Michalowicz and Profit First and Greg Crabtree with with simple numbers. They've done a wonderful job to to make to make it approachable. But absent that, the the, the body of work is really small, and they they being the entrepreneurs, they see they see equations, they hear things that their CFO or their accounting teams are talking about, and and it's it's uneasy for them because I think about like Mercedes, like she's an artist. She doesn't want to have to think about finance, but she does and is motivated to think about finance to the extent of that she wants to own and control her business and she wants to create something valuable. And that's where I think the rubber meets the road is the idea that know enough so you can navigate this and then you can leave the rest up to the accounting and the finance team but know enough so you can own your business and control it and create something valuable for you and your family long-term. And you've got, you've got some ideas in the book around how do you create more value? Can we dive into some of those? Definitely. Within the book, we, we talk about the nine components to a breakout valuation. And I'm happy to dive into any of them, and I'll just rattle them off here for for the the sake of conversation. But we start with confidence to lay the foundation, the vision, the magnetic vision of the founder, curiosity to make sure an entrepreneur is asking questions of essence, Uh, people. And I know you've done a lot of work and your book talks about and touches upon culture, you know, how important people are, Uh, communications and being able to articulate uh, values to not only your team but external to the business. Uh, cash management, you know the 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 simple idea that you really have to know the trifecta of cash. You know what's your cash balance? What others owe you? What you owe others? Um, and then financial forecast. We've just been talking about. You know what can the business do over time? How much money it'll take? And then the last two get a little more um, or more around like optimization, but it's capital strategy. You know, getting into the more details of like, how do you properly capitalize a business? And then business design. What are all the other things that one could be doing to dial in and optimize how the business functions? And that speaks right into like the work of, you know, you and Vern and so on and so forth is really that that business design and, and making sure that everything is dialed in as best as it can be. Okay. Where do you want to go? Which one do you... Which one should we dive into? I always love to start with vision. Let's do that then. Excellent. So the one common thread with all entrepreneurs, all founding entrepreneurs, is a magnetic vision. And everybody has a vision, but the ones that really break out have a magnetic vision. And what I mean by that is that they have a vision, but when they can start articulating it to others and attracting people to that vision, it becomes magnetic. And that's where breakout valuations happen. That's where real value can be driven, especially for earlier stage businesses and businesses that are going into new markets and they don't have a proven business model. I know you and I could have a ton of case studies of little businesses that you know the vast majority of the listeners are never going to hear of. Um, and I just say all that because there's a lot of case studies, but the big case studies that the vast majority of people are familiar with are the big companies. And I just say that because people are always like, oh, of course, but that was an outlier. And I'm like, no, 
There's a reason why Google bought YouTube for a billion dollars. There's a reason why Facebook bought Instagram for a billion dollars and on down the list. Because the founders of YouTube and Instagram, and you could go down in, in, in Zappos with Amazon, those founders had a magnetic vision. Not only did they have a vision, but it was so vivid and so granular, they knew where that business model could and would live in the world in 5, 10, 20, 50 years from now. And they were able to articulate it, and they were able to get somebody to pay for that vision. That's where breakout happens. And so that's why in the book we talk about magnetic vision, because it's one thing to be able to have an idea what the business is going to, where it's going to go, but it has to be communicated. It has to be articulated internally, and it has to be um, uh, articulated externally as well. And it, and it takes work. It's hard. <laughs> you know, it's hard, it's hard to sit down with clients all the time and I say, why does this company exist? And, and they tell me what they do. And I say, yeah, well, no, I, I get that. That's what you do. But like, why do you do that? And they think about it and they tell me what they do again. And, and, and I ask them again and they go, am I being thick? And I'm like, no, it's just, this is hard, right? You know, it's not what you do that I want to know. I want to know why. Like, if this business disappeared, why would anybody care? Why do you get out of bed in the morning? Why would, why would anyone want to come and join this business? You know, and I was over in the Philippines last week with a client and, you know, their, their purpose is to change lives. And, you know, they've got a short-term goal, short-term mission, change the lives of 5,000 Filipinos. And, you know, when, when the tornado hit about December last year, a third of their employees lost their houses. Like, it wasn't like the roof blew off. It, they went back in the morning and there was nothing there. And so the company said, okay, well, our purpose is to change lives. We're going to go and rebuild everybody's house because they have no insurance. And so that's what we're going to do. And so it helps people make decisions. It helps do the right thing. That's, you know, what they do is they're, a, they're, they're an outsourcer and they've got a load of virtual assistants. But that wouldn't have helped them decide that the right thing to do was to go and rebuild houses. And so that magnetic vision is just so incredibly powerful that it helps you make deci strategic decisions all day long. Well, exactly. What's your, what, the, of, the, of the people either in EO or that you've worked with, what, what are some of the magnetic visions that still resonate with you? It's a great question. So um, a couple that probably the ones that really come to mind are from the, the, the entrepreneurs that run businesses that are like a coffee business where she only sources from women-owned coffee farms. <laughs> that, 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 that's a niche of a niche. Right. And her vision is to bring that coffee to the world. And so it drives everything she's done with brand. It's driven her strategy. So that really resonates with me. Um, the, the, the tile maker, you know, making beautiful tile mosaics and having it be inspirational, especially within businesses. And she's got some very large um, clients that have beautiful pieces of work um, that are in retail locations and how that, drives her and her team to inspire others. And so some of those are the magnetic visions that always really resonated with me. The example I give in the book is just is simply 
is Google. Because again, it's just, it's a household name that everybody can identify with. But you think about like the founding of Google and to basically just say, hey, we're going to organize all the world's information, you know, that, that that's just quite amazing. And so everybody stops, pauses, wow, well, how are you going to do that? And they open up the invitation for someone to learn more. Yeah. And that's what gets interesting because then people are interested in learning more and they might become an employee. They might become a vendor. They might become an investor. They might become an acquirer or strategic partner. Okay. So that's good and it's hard, but it's powerful. Yeah. Well, and I would just say, Dom, I mean, that's what's so valuable about your work, right? A really good coach that can tease out the why. And as you think about like Simon Sinek's work, you know, start with why, the how, and then the what, but you, you know, when you can get somebody because it I've had I hire coaches to tease it out of me. And and I think any entrepreneur, it's really hard for them just to kind of do it on their own. They need outsiders. They need other party that's like, why, why, why? Tell me more there. Pull on that thread. So it's it's valuable. It's it's interesting though. One of the one of the things that uh I think you also have to do is you have to be cognizant of the who. Big, you know, if you think about Apple, which is the example that Simon Sinek uses in his book, Start With Why, right? You know, when the iPad came out, or the, maybe it was the iPad 2, I, I could go to a local electrical store and buy it. And I walked in and there was nobody there and I bought it. I was in and out in two minutes. But I went to the local shopping center, shopping mall, and there was a queue of hundreds of people who were queuing up to buy the thing that I just bought. But I, I bought it without the experience. But the experience isn't valuable to me. I'm, I'm not in the community. Right. And so, and so, you know, Apple sells 7% of the smartphones in the world, but makes 70% of the profit from them. <laughs> right. And there's a certain proportion of the world that wants to own an iPhone. And, and therefore, the why resonates with them. It doesn't resonate with the other ninety three percent because they go buy a different phone, and so so there is a there is this sort of interconnect between the who and the why that if you don't get it right, you just end up running, well, you end up running a charity. I, I love it. I completely agree. You're not running a sustainable business. I completely agree, and that's why I, I love the concept of a magnetic vision because I think a well articulated vision will naturally attract the right audience. And so ideally, like, I think if somebody can define their audience on the front end, that's great. But if they've got to stumble a bit through it, that's that's okay, too. And if a good vision can attract the right people and they can start to understand who their target audience and the who really is. So where do you want to go next? Do you want to, do you want to talk a bit about business design? Sure. What have you got? What's, what are you thinking there? What, what should people be thinking around business design to drive value? Optimization. Okay. So, and we can take that in a number of different ways. We could talk about finance, operations, people. Within finance, optimization is making sure any invoices are collected on time, invoices are sent on time, that there's processes in place. This is the the design framework that has become very popular with the entrepreneurial operating system. And uh, there's a number of other systems as well, but in the entrepreneurial communities, like EOS has really caught on. But it's taking the time to really design in finance all the things that will make sure that, you know, revenues are forecasted and, and cash flows are forecasted, but then making sure one can stay true to that by a big thing is collecting on, on receivables for a lot of business models. 
And for some business models, optimization and business design may be around managing inventory levels. And so there's, there's a lot there. But optimization is the name of the game, especially for a high growth business cannot afford to be sloppy. But by definition, a high growth business, that's when they're the sloppiest because things are coming at them so fast and they don't have time and they feel like, hey, I could just buy another hundred grand of inventory because I'm selling it so fast and I'm getting a discount. Well, maybe not. Maybe that could be the thing that kills your business because you don't have enough money to make payroll three weeks after you buy that slice of inventory. So it's that's really working on the business and not in it. Yeah. Taking the time to design the business model. Yeah. And that comes back to that cash flow forecast, having that in place. You know, and I it's funny because I, you know, spend time with small companies and they're somewhat in awe of what they think big companies are able to achieve. And yet speaking with a large company the other day who thought that maybe they'd forgotten to invoice two million pounds of <laughs> revenue in the first quarter of the year somehow it just didn't happen and uh you know the good news is they noticed and they could do something about it but uh i don't think you necessarily look at always look at big companies as the uh as the experts right they've got comp- they've got complexity right well they can get away with being sloppy a little more and so you talked there, that was the finance thing. What are you thinking about when you do, when you, you said the other things were people and? Operations. Operations. So what else were you thinking there in terms of business design around, maybe around people? Yeah, people. So a great example, your recent podcast with Vern and you, you know, you do a lot of work talking about culture, but it's really optimizing, you know, how a business is, is working with their people. You could come at this from a number of different angles. You could think about, a lot of people think about maybe like a sales team and optimizing that and optimizing compensation, you know, like Vern was talking about, right, you know, right, right people on the right seats on the bus. There's a lot of optimization that needs to be done there and it's ongoing all the time. But for a high growth company, the one thing that comes to mind for people, for me, is the timing of hiring and, you know, being quick to fire if it doesn't meet milestones or expectations. Because one of the biggest expenses or the vast majority of business models, the largest expense in growth is people. And so when, when I look at investing in businesses, you know, the vast majority of things that they need to fund is the buildup of a team. And so the buildup of a team is fine. But where I've seen companies get in a lot of trouble and, and go belly up is where they build out the team. But if the team or just the business model may be no fault of the team, but something's just not the growth isn't what they expected. And all of a sudden they've got this new level of expense and they don't have the level of revenues to support it. And they're like, oh, just a few more weeks or another month or this, the classic cases, all oh, the salesperson's like, they're so assured that this big contract's gonna get signed. Like that's the killer. Like I've literally seen a number of businesses go bankrupt because of you know an overconfident salesperson. But that's that's the idea of optimization is, making sure that there's a design in place for the people, for the team, for the culture, but then being intentional to stick with it and to be able to act when it's needed because if things have changed and they do change along the way and being able to act as quickly as possible. That's what goes through my mind when I think about optimization and business design because that all directly affects a finance 
that all directly affects valuation. That's why it's in the book. Okay. I mean, you use, you use the, you talk about trade secrets as, you know, as another driver in here in, in sort of business design. Exactly. I find it fascinating because quite often there is something that the company does really, really well that because they do it really, really well, it's about, it's a bit like us human beings. We have, if you have a skill, right. if you have a talent, you know, you almost don't even notice that you do it anymore. And so I thought that was interesting because I do that. I look at that with clients quite a bit. And I, th- I say to people, you know, this is this thing you do here. You know, you do this better than anybody I've seen do it. And they go, oh, do we really? We've got no idea. Oh, right. that's interesting. And it's like, well, this is an asset that you can, you know, you can leverage in your business uh, that w- people would be, would pay for. And And if you tell the story right around this, then you know it it makes you either increases your value or makes you more investable exactly so that little nugget you just shared with your audience is that could be worth millions of dollars to the right entrepreneur that one little nugget and that's that's a that I absolutely love it that that's a great example is and that's why in the book we we talk about trade secrets and not intellectual property. I'm, I'm not really a fan of IP. I am a fan of like trade secrets. And because a lot of times it's speaking to what you just talked about is the processes and how things are being done and the rhyme and the rhythm to that, because that's what makes all the difference. I think about often it's linked to, or it has real power when it's linked to one health metric that we're driving on so you know one client springs to mind you know their number is they want to add 500 new partners a month and if they do that their economic model all works and if they don't do that it'll fall apart or it's harder you know another client if they can hire if they can go from cv received to offer in five business days they they demolish their competitors because their competitors will take 20 days Right, And therefore, by the time that happens, they've taken four people out of the market that their competitor can't hire. And, and yet, so often, they don't see that. They don't realize, you know, they somehow stumbled upon it and you point it out to them and they're like, oh, that's amazing. But it's, you know, I look at it from the outside and it's, it's there in every business. There is a, there's that, there's a competitive process in every business, which is, what is it that you're doing? If you understand either the acquisition of talent or the acquisition of customers really well, it's, it's, it's in one of those processes where you're, you're winning and that should really be the focus as you scale. Exactly. It's an extremely valuable asset and it's not on the balance sheet. Yeah, yeah. Um, when you talk about curiosity, what are you thinking there? What's, what's in your mind? Curiosity was written in the book because one of the biggest lessons I ever received in my career was watching executives at their best. I started out as a Wall Street stock analyst, and I would take CEOs and CFOs on roadshows to New York and elsewhere. And I'll never forget when a uh, a portfolio manager that ran a billion-dollar fund, we sat down with the executive team, and he pushed aside the, the presentation, and he asked some very basic questions. Like, how do you make money? I'm making this up, but it's like some like, how do you make money? And how does this work? How does that work? And as a young analyst at the time, I was kind of like, I was a bit set back. I'm like, there's no way you took this meeting. You have no idea how this company makes money. Like, in matter of fact, I know you own the stock. So why are you asking such 
dumb questions, dumb and, you know, in quotations, like, you know, like such simple questions. But then it hit me. He didn't care about the answer. He cared about the reaction of the executives. And he cared about the additional insights that when they had their guards down, the additional insights that came of it. So I set that all uh, on the stage there as the foundation for the idea of curiosity comes down to what I love to call questions of essence, really good questions and empowering entrepreneurs to ask questions of essence. Because really simple questions lead to the most profound insights. And the reason I had to start the book out with the idea of curiosity when we're talking about a wonky subject like valuation is that the difference between the entrepreneurs I've seen win and the entrepreneurs that I've seen that have not won, uh, I didn't say lose, they have not won yet, is that they, in large part, were not asking questions of essence. Here's a great case study. An entrepreneur needs money, they go into a bank and they get told no. They don't ask why or how does this work or what parameters. They don't ask about, you know, do you have ever other referrals to me? You know, other insights and so forth. Because they just take it as a no and then they think, oh, geez, all banks are no's and my, my company's just not bankable. But the entrepreneurs who are as curious as a four-year-old that are asking all the questions like, why not? How does this work? What are parameters? Do you know other people that would lend to a business like mine and ask all the the simple questions? They're the ones that get their businesses the capital that they need to succeed. And that's why the idea of questions of essence and inspiring entrepreneurs to not be afraid to ask anybody, no matter what, how fancy their, their suit or dress is, to make sure that they're asking the questions that can, can lead them to the results that they need. I've just spent a couple of weeks in London with an outfit called Macquarie Telecom Group, who I've worked with for probably the last 10 years. And what they do every year is they do a study trip to the UK because they've got a strategic question that they're trying to solve in Australia. And because they don't compete in the UK, we can get businesses to meet us. So we did 32 meetings in the last two weeks. And we just asked people questions about what was driving top line revenue in their business and to see if we could learn anything from it. And it was fascinating. When we did the workshop on Friday to see what we'd learned, we read back through our study brief and we realized that knowing what we know now, the brief made no sense. But, you know, they've built a business, you know, they've invested in net promoter score 10 years ago, which is where I first met them. They've built data centers on the back of study trips. They've launched public cloud consulting businesses on the back of study trips. You know, they're now, I think, $1.4 billion market cap in Australia. And it comes from this curiosity, you know, knowing that you don't know. And, and, and that was so obvious in, in the fact that when they'd written the study brief about three months ago, and then you look at it now, what they know now means that what they knew, net, what they knew three months ago are totally different. And it's like, huh, we can't use the study brief as a template for answering the questions because actually we've realized there's a whole load of stuff we didn't know. And that curiosity is so powerful. It's so powerful. And, and so often you can get even with a competitor and have a conversation about the people who aren't in the room if you're just generous about yourself. So I'm an investor. I invest in private businesses. I wrote this in there, hoping more people are coming to me asking questions because it's shocking how rare somebody asks me questions that would yield them huge results. 
Like, here's just an easy common one to ask an investor. Do you know anyone else that I should meet with? Boom. You don't think I know five, 10 other people that should know that company? Heck yes, I do. But if somebody doesn't ask me for it, they're not going to get it. And even if you don't invest, as long as you like them, you're probably prepared to share. Oh, I do all the time, especially with investors. And that's why I want to empower entrepreneurs to ask questions. Never be afraid of asking simple questions because, look, and I've been there. I, I get it. I understand. We've all walked into meetings where all of a sudden you feel like the person you're meeting with, like you're so grateful you're in shock that you even got the meeting and that they're so important and they got so much going on. And it's amazing that they're even going to give you the time of day. We've all been in those meetings. But when they have that type of mindset and they go into that meeting of just shock and awe and just like, you know, they're going to, you know, rattle off what they have to say and hope for a yes or no and move on their way because they're going to, they don't want to offend them or they don't want to bother them or whatever their mental mind block is it causes a lot of damage because it's those meetings that get magical when entrepreneurs walk in with an open mind, a Shoshin mindset of having an open mind and fully curious to ask and explore. That's where the magic happens. And I'll just tell you a little investor insider tip. The companies that come in asking us as many questions as we're asking them, those are the companies we're most likely to invest in. Like when they've got that level of curiosity, like what do you do? How do you do it? Who else should we know? Boom, boom, boom. I love that because if they're doing that with me, they're doing it with others. And if they're doing it with others, I know they're successful. Yeah, is that, I mean, your first thing on your list was confidence. There's a, is there a certain amount of confidence required to come in and ask those questions? Yeah, very much so. Very much so. Okay. Look, I don't want to give away the entire contents of your book. Oh, let's, whatever's fine. <laughs> I just want to get the word out. I just want to help entrepreneurs. <laughs> okay, well, maybe one more. Uh, communication. Communications is absolutely key to all stakeholders. And the thing that I learned, I think the hard way, and we all have to some degrees, is we all feel a bit afraid to be vulnerable. We all feel afraid to over-communicate. But where I have seen awesome businesses and entrepreneurs in deals fail is when they did not communicate to the extent they could have. And a great example is when, you know, things are not going well and people are afraid to communicate that things aren't going ideally. That's where sad situations happen. To the other side of that equation is I've seen where entrepreneurs have shared bad news and they've proactively said, hey, this isn't going well. Instead of their investors running away, they've actually put in more money and supported the entrepreneur and supported the journey. Now, if things aren't going well and, and, and the entrepreneur isn't sharing that it's not going well and all of a sudden they, they share it late in the game, that's when investors do run because a lot of trust has been eroded. So there's two things that move money. It's trust and emotion. And both of those things don't come without the appropriate communications. And so that's why we impact that early on in the book to help lay the framework of creating a valuable business. You can't replace trust. You have, you know, you have to have it. It's easy to lose. You've got to work on building it. Yes. And you can't build it without communication. Right. Totally. totally. Yeah. 
and that's why like social media in in things like that can be extremely valuable. Like I I went into this conversation today having already known you a bit even though we've never met in person before. But because you have communicated, you have content out in the world on social media and with your podcast and so forth. And it's extremely valuable because I could enter the conversation today with you, Dom, trusting you. So it is valuable to think through where and how to communicate as an entrepreneur to build value in, in the business. Do you know, as always happens, these type of things just trigger synapses in my head. So we, you know, <laughs> we haven't we haven't dived into the people thing, but I would say one of the things which is really interesting is I speak to people who say, Oh, it's terrible. I'm losing the war for talent. And I go, okay is it really important to you? And they say, yes. Okay. So you go, okay, well, let's just think about, it's a Sunday evening. I've got a glass of wine in my hand. I hate the job I'm doing. And I think what might be out there. Okay. Let's go online and find you because you're trying to recruit these people. And you look at their glass door and it says they're a bit rubbish. And then you look at the CEO's LinkedIn profile and it's totally rubbish. And then you look at the hiring manager's LinkedIn profile. It hasn't been updated ever. And you think, okay, so here's a boringly written job ad and nothing else on social media says that you should care. There's no, mag- there's no evidence of a magnetic vision. And so this great candidate just goes past them and they have no idea why. And so they're losing the war on talent because they're not even in the war on talent. No, because <laughs> it won't cut. It, it, maybe for a, for a brief moment in time, it could come down to the money, but that's fleeting. Somebody might jump on board because it's the most money they get, but they're not going to stick around and the churn will always be high. Yeah, that communication. Brilliant. Look, what Patrick, what is it you know now that you wish you'd known earlier? What I know now that I wish I had known earlier is the concept of uh, life by design to really being intentional to design your life. Uh Um, It's something I've been reflecting deeply upon, and it really hit me over the head seeing Jack Daly uh, give a presentation last May that uh, was very profound for me when he talked about his his new book and the things that he has done. Uh, So the idea of life by design, I wish I had thought of and known of a long time ago. That's moved the needle for me quite a bit. So what changes have you made? What what deliberate design changes have you made in the rest of your life? Oh, Dom, how much time do we have? Because I can go <laughs> on for a while. I'll give you a couple punchlines. Okay. Getting up early in the morning. I've always heard Tim Ferriss and so many people ask and talk about morning routines. And I've read the books by Hal Elrod and, and Robin Sharma and others. But when the pandemic hit, I had finally gotten the motivation to get up at five in the morning and start my day with the 10, 10, 10, and, you know, mind, body, soul, you can frame it up a number of different ways, but designing my life around intentional reflections of mind, body, and soul in the morning has been absolutely profound. So punchline is, is I've, I've lost 30 to 40 pounds in the last two years, but I don't even care about the weight because I never felt like overweight, but I feel more in shape and more fit and more alive than I ever have in my life. Okay. It's very good. Yeah. I think there's something, I like Ryan Holiday stuff around Daily Stoic. So that was a tipping point for me, was Daily Stoic. Thank you for bringing that up. So I like that because it's like, you know, you might fail, you might stumble, but you, it's about trying. and But it's about being deliberate about 
picking yourself up and trying. And I had, uh, I was at one of Vern's scaling up conferences a few years ago and a coach took me through the one page personal plan. And, you know, I wrote down then that the, you know, the, what was the relationship that I thought would be important to me in the future I had two young daughters at the time. And what was the action I was going to take in the next 90 days? And I said, I'm going to take them to school one day a week, which at the time was more than I was doing. And now I take them to school every day. Yeah. If, if I'm not out of the country. And that's all deliberate design, you know? Very much so. Uh, and, it, and so it just, it makes you, uh, there's a great book that I've just read by he says d- diving into amazon called undisruptible by aiden mccullen oh sure who was which was recommended to me by another guest a couple of weeks ago fantastic you'll love it it's it's all about that you know how to because i think if you've got a designed life it makes you feel more res- it's more resilient very much so. right you're not just sort of you're not being cast about on the on the tide you've got uh you've got a plan and you can overcome you can respond and overcome without feeling bounced around. Right. And which is so utterly important for entrepreneurs. <laughs> uh, I read a thing the other day, which was purpose over willpower, right? I was coaching somebody recently who is hoping to step up to the CEO role. And uh, I said, what's your, what's your vision for the business? And he said, I don't know. What do you mean? And I said, well, look, there'll be bits of, when you get the top job, there'll be bits of it that you really don't like. And so unless you've got, I mean, it comes back to your you know, magnetic vision for the business. How will you dig deep on those days to get through? And exactly. that, he hadn't thought about that at all, but he has subsequently. And I think that's setting him up for success. So um, what other books should we get people to read? You know, you've mentioned Mike Michalowicz. Uh, profit first that's good greg crabtree simple numbers 2.0 we've had both of those two guys on the podcast yes indeed. Uh, before um what else do you think people should read obviously breakout valuation well i'll, I'll take this from a different angle just like a, a, a personal development and things that since you asked the question about uh we got in the conversation about life by design uh when i read the daily stoic i'll never forget march 19th that that's a that's a very powerful day for me but there was a quote in there from a indian jesuit priest whom i've never heard of before anthony DeMello, and that will have forever changed my life um, the book by Anthony DeMello, there's a few of them, but it's Awareness. Awareness by Anthony DeMello. Absolutely profound and massive impact on my life. The next book that came out of left field, just in the last, it was about eight months ago, was a book called Breath by James Nestor. Oh, oh fabulous book. Okay, so Dom, here's, here's the other, like, how's my life changed? Here's what's wacky. I'm not a runner. I don't care to run, but I've learned to run. Uh, because uh, with young children, it was the one way I could get my heart rate up and, you know, a quick workout. Read the book called Breath, was traveling, started running, breathing through my nose. It was weird, awkward, gross at times. (laughs) And, And then I just started to break out. And then I saw Jack Daly in May of this year of 2022 in I couldn't believe the stories Jack had about running Ironmans and so triathlons and so forth. And at what age he started all of that. 
at 58. And this book breath, and it was all going through my head. Two days after Jack gave that presentation, I went out running and kept going, only breathing through my nose. And I ran just short of 28 miles that day. <laughs> I'd never run more than, you know, five miles. Like it was only a few years ago I could run a mile without stopping. It's fabulous, isn't it? So the book by the book Breath by James Nestor is just it was mind-blowing to just read it, but then to actually live it and breathing through my nose has been a game changer. And do you tape your mouth up at night? I did for a while, and I've found that I, I don't believe I have my mouth open anymore. But for, for a few nights in the beginning when I read the book, I did. Oh, no, I have to tape it up all the time, otherwise I'm snoring. So, <laughs> but, that's, but that's transformed my sleep quality. Ah, so you're very and well so, yeah. familiar with the, the, the impact. Totally. What, you got anything else? You got another third one? I'm going to stick with those two. I do have others, but I'm going to leave it at that. Well, I would say the Daily Stoic. That'd definitely be my third. I think I started with that. How about that? Fab. Okay. Brilliant. Patrick, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on. I've loved chatting to you. Thank you. Likewise, Dom. I appreciate the opportunity to talk about building valuable businesses for entrepreneurs. It's near and dear to my heart. So I appreciate the opportunity to chat with you. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. If you'd be kind enough to leave a review, it will really help other like-minded entrepreneurs find this podcast and grow our community. For all information relating to this episode, you can go to monkhouseandcompany.com forward slash podcast, where you'll find some cracking show notes, additional reading and links relating to our guest. There you can also find my blog and past episodes of my subjectively not crap newsletter, where I'll update you on the best articles I read that week, some recommended books and other podcasts. Thanks, and I will see you next week.